So we're going to start with verse 31. And then we get to start the hard chapter, but we'll see how far we get with the last part of verse 8, chapter 8. We did do this last week, but we did it in a great hurry and did not take adequate time for this beautiful passage. So, Dave, you're not usually with us, so I'm going to pick on you to read. We'll okay. go counterclockwise around the table. Okay. Just a verse and um, go around, or what do you want? Yeah, why don't we do a verse since this is a small uh, piece. Okay. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Yes, that's kind of one of those things where it feel, you feel like it says it all. I, I, I really think in light of the previous verses where it talks about predestination and all of that, that you could, call, could title this passage, <clears throat> Chosen. I chose you. I I won't leave you, you can't get rid of me, <laughs> sort of thing. What's this one verse I thought was interesting that says, um, well, 36, as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. What is that kind of trying to bring out and, and what? Well, it's to? it's tied to well, hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or perils or sword separate us. So as the scripture says, we're being persecuted all day long. We're, we're being killed all day long. Uh, Paul saw persecution as kind of a dying daily, being killed daily. As far as like all the troubles and stuff we have kind of thing? Or no, the, the more specifically, specific, I see him specifically talking about persecution. As far as, yeah, as far as someone else actually persecuting for it your was, beliefs. It was real in those times right. that Christians were persecuted. Right. Okay. Um, it's also an allusion to Christ as well. Yeah, okay. it could be an allusion to him. I'm just looking for Philippians here because Paul gives. The, the quote is from Psalm 44. I am, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading through that right yeah. now. It's a word for word. Yeah. Exactly. I'm just trying to find the context that that was 
No, it's not that. It's first. It's Second uh, Corinthians. First Corinthians. Second Corinthians. It's a stern letter. He do, he somewhere lists everything he'd gone through. Oh, yeah, like yeah, and, uh, and, and all that stuff. Oh, it's Second Corinthians. What am I doing? Yeah. Oh, here it is. Chapter six. Second Corinthians eleven. But whatever anyone dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm better. I'm a better one, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless floggings, and often near death. Five times I have received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys on, in dangers from rivers, in danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I'm a, I am not indignant? So I think it's under that context that he says we, he cites that verse in, in the Psalms that we are being killed all day long. I, the way I see Paul, when he says, I am crucified with Christ, he woke up every morning and kind of looked in the mirror and said, I'm ready to die today. He took inventory, can I... Can I keep going? Can I keep doing this? And in Christ, he found the strength to say, I, I lay down my life today. If I die today, you know, I'm, I'm willing to die. And that's how I see him actually operating on a day-by-day basis. So when he says, I die daily, mm-hmm. he literally means that. Because for him, he's made that choice on a daily basis. I think part of that, though, is in some ways... It's easier to die for Christ than it is to live for Him, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that part has to be wrapped into that is that I'm I'm dying to my plans or what I what my natural inclinations would be of how to what I would want to do right. today. Now, sometimes that may line up with God's plan, and as as we become more and more remolded into God's character, one would hope that there there would be a higher and higher congruency between these things. But that there has to be this, you know, not my will but thine kind of idea that goes on, not just you know first thing in the morning, but ongoing during the course of the day of saying of, at each decision point well is this me or is this God or you know um. yeah I think definitely that was part of Paul's package um, that he died to self as well as dying in the sense of what I find helpful about saying I'm willing to die today is that it it helps me to do all the other dying it's like it, it puts everything in perspective mm-hmm. for me so that I'm less stressed by the things mm. that happen during the day that I don't like to have to go through. This reminds me of uh, Matthew sixteen twenty five. It's also in Matthew ten thirty nine. It says, For whosoever shall 
save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've thought that it's similar to what you were talking about, you know. We have our plans, our the direction we think we want to go in life, we give that up. Is that what he's talking about? I mean, he could literally be dying also, literally being killed for him. Mm -hmm. But I think in a sense it's... I think I think for Paul it's the whole package. Dropping our plans and yeah. living for Christ. I think I think for Paul it's the whole package. Not an either. Offering order. ourselves as a, uh, a living yeah, sacrifice uh, uh, comes Roman, to mind. Yeah. Isn't that Romans twelve? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Actually, that's logikos. Or spiritual. It's our logical, our logical worship. I think the the church in Rome is struggling with what is the gospel, and also lifestyle issues. How do we live? How do we follow Jesus Christ? And so, um, for me, looking at these, um, verse thirty-three is key, where he says, "Who shall bring a charge?" against God's elect, right? He's opening up the terms of what it means to be God's elect. And he's just radically uh, redefined it, or he's, he's setting up for chapter 9 what's coming um, in verse 30, where he talks about being called, being justified, being glorified, right? And he's about to go on and explain that. So the context uh, for my thinking who shall bring a charge against God's elect, right? Jews and Gentiles, that includes all who are called, right, in Christ Jesus. Uh, the invitation is open to everybody. And he's going to figure out, he's going to explain what that is. So he puts in this passage here, I feel, because the Christians are undergoing persecution. And even within the church, right, the Jews or the Judaizers, they're persecuting the Gentiles because they're saying, well, you need to get circumcised in order to be a Christian. You need to follow all these Mosaic laws. You need to do this. You need to do that. And so he's uh, using these broad categories and he's inviting them to see, right, you are elect. You are called. There's nothing that's going to separate you from God. He's also he's just addressed the law, and now he's addressing the issue of persecution. That could be outside of the church, inside the body, wherever that lies. Well, it is, in a sense, for Paul, the Judaizers, which were in the church, I mean, they were, they were supposedly Christian believers, weren't they? Uh, the Judaizers uh, were the ones that instigated the process that led to Paul's imprisonment mm -hmm. yes and that brought him to Rome a, he lived under a constant death threat from them mm -hmm. they were following him from town to town and I believe that's why he wrote some of these letters that went ahead of him not just because he wanted to raise funds to expand the ministry um, but because in case he didn't make it he wanted to set out a clear case this is what I stand for look I don't reject the law the law is a good thing you know, he puts everything in context in Romans so that people would have this testament of what he stood for because he'd been uh, misrepresented by the Judaizers. 
It's Thank a good you. thing that sort of thing never happens now. Well, maybe it's never happened now, but it will. <laughs> so, anything else in this uh, passage? I, 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 to me, and I know this isn't the context Paul is bringing to it, but whatever the intercession of Jesus is, and I believe it's real, it does not involve getting the Father on his side or on our side. You know, it's just, this is very, very clear that Mm -hmm. if God is for us, who can be against us? Anything else before we move on? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, so who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You could say, who shall separate us from the love of God? The Mm -hmm. Father. Mm -hmm. Right. I heard a sermon recently where they were it's talking about that many of our the preconceptions of, of of this God the Father that needs to be um, appeased appeased or you know, whatever that Persuaded. that is when we view God from our perspective of us trying to find our way back to God but that when we look at but that Jesus was the demonstration of God actually what he, the uh, the well the, he's the personification of the entirety of God and what the extent mm-hmm. that they would go mm-hmm. to to try and the find express us. image as Hebrews but as but as opposed to God trying to find us as opposed to us trying to find God and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that but that Jesus was the personification of the entire Godhead's mission mm-hmm. uh, to, to do that um, yeah I, I, I sometimes think that when Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son he was attempting to do a reset button mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on our concepts of, of God and salvation and I mean there's just so many things I mean the sacrificial system becomes a fatted calf killed to to be a banquet, <laughs> you know, and, and instead of some kind of appeasement offering. And um, and the father is waiting for the son practically. I mean, he has to be, or he wouldn't see him coming down the road. Yeah, he was actively looking. He was actively looking for the son. And then he did something that was um, unheard of, I mean, for a... You know, a person of stature to, to run, I mean, that was... An, and he runs, and he puts his his best clothes on him. Yeah, I mean, I I shouldn't get started on that. I I preached a sermon on it, and I could do the same easily. But but it, it just seems to me that there's no room. In fact, there's intercession in the story. Mm-hmm. The father, and it's actually the word for parakaleo, to par- to intercede. The father goes out to intercede with the older brother. Right. I also think part of the the running out was an interceding between the son and the the larger community right. because what he had done under Mosaic law was actually punishable by death. Yes, and he had to get he out. He had wished there. his father dead, basically. Right. And but so the father had to get out there before anybody else from town got there to try and to to, to demonstrate we're good. You know, we don't need back to, off. Yeah, we we don't need. Yeah. Your stones. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the father's actually setting the tone for how the rest of the community is going to walk in the back or not. That's, mm-hmm. that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. 
I think if Paul could have found any more words for 38. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers. You're, I noticed your version said demons. Mm-hmm. And what is yours? Oh, rulers. Rulers. It's possible that those rulers are seen interpreted as demons. They're the rulers of this age, the rulers of this world. Mm-hmm. It's possible those are seen mm-hmm. as demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New King James just says principalities or powers. It doesn't specify. The Greek says rulers. The Greek says rulers. You you have your Greek New Testament. I, I mean, yeah. No, I, I just clicked on the, the side notes. Oh, okay. Do you want me to look it up? I have a study Bible. Let me see if... Angels, rulers, powers, neither death nor sea. Supernatural beings, whether evil or good, of various ranks. Is what my well, study what Bible says. saying by demons, yeah. evil and good. Angels yeah. and demons. Basically, which, good or evil. Which we should always keep in mind when we have a situation of oppression and kingly power, to use Ellen White's phrase. We're not just dealing with human, with flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. No. We're dealing with principalities and powers, mm-hmm. as your version says. Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready to leave this, or do you want to muse some more? Okay. One person has nodded their head, so I'm going to take that as a go sign. <laughs> Let's go to dying. And now we can read sections. So, David, would you read verses 1? We have two Davids in this room, so <laughs> I hope that's not too confusing. But And the one that's next to me, would you read verses 1 to 5, please? Okay. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. You can certainly hear Paul's grief. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, is, isn't it Jesus' grief, too? I mean, he's an Israelite. And you notice the list that he has in verse 4. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, and the patriarchs, and the Messiah. Hmm. He's talking to Jewish Romans right now? Like Jews that are living in Rome? I would guess. Um, The diaspora. And and so that's why he's sad, because he's saying they're not believers? Or, or he's he's talking. It, he's Jewish talking about. Oh, I think. Yeah, yeah right. I think he's talking about the Jewish right. nation as well. Right. Um, the state of his people. Yeah. Uh, just in general. In general. He's been pretty hard on them elsewhere in the book, and he wants them to know that he is not. He he hasn't stopped loving them as his brothers and sisters. 
he just can't love them as his brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's what hurts him. Well, that, and just knowing the, the eternal ramifications of that. Right. I can't, but when I read this list, I can't help but remember the times I've sat in the Temple Emanuel in San Francisco with my students. And listen to the service. And those things are there. But there's something missing. There's just something really, really missing. <clears throat> In fact, what really kind of got me, I, I remember the first time this happened, they, they opened this chest, two doors, and inside is this Door. light bulb. Oh. Mm-hmm. What does the light bulb represent? Shekinah. The Shekinah mm-hmm. left Jerusalem Left the left the the ark, the ark of the covenant, left the temple, left Jerusalem, went to the top of the Mount of Olives before it finally left completely, in the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Hasn't been back. Well, not in that form. Not in that form, <laughs> right? <laughs> in Christ, it has, but but. It, it always, it, I mean, the first time they opened that chest, which symbolized the Mark of the Covenant, and I saw that light bulb in there, I thought, oh, this is so sad. <laughs> you know, this is, this is just not, not the real thing. Um, and it's, it's felt like, and of course I was in the Temple Emmanuel's Reformed Judaism. <clears throat> so I, I was... Um, feeling like the focus of attention was on ourselves as a Jewish people. That that was almost our God. Um, and I don't know if that's unique to Reformed Judaism and not true of maybe the conservative group or the Orthodox Jews. Um, and it just, it, it felt like there was something missing. It was an intriguing worship service. It was culturally uh, enjoyable. Uh, in many ways, my students always enjoyed going there, but it always felt, I always felt this something isn't right. So here's Paul. The, he knows the richness of Israel, but they just won't come to the Messiah. Well, that is sort of a. A, a, a human thing of what you're talking about, as far as the their their Judaism or their identity is becoming their god. I mean that it's very common for people to within a group to so closely identify with their group that that becomes the end all be all. Is that what um, happened to us? Like, That's what's happening right now. <laughs> that, yeah. Well, sure. I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, uh, I do think that that is. A lot I, I to think do with it. I think maybe that was our first step. We shifted our focus from God to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the the question that goes through my mind is: as as you go and visit, you know, another worship service. There's there's elements of it that are familiar to you and, and others that are completely new and, and you're able to look at it objectively and say, 
something's missing. But when you come to your own, that is, you know, very, very comfortable. It's like, you know, putting on that old flannel shirt. It's just, it's yours. But someone else who comes in, who, who finds elements and says, yeah, this is very familiar, and yet something's missing. And so, so what is it? What is it when they come into, and I don't, I'm not just talking about just our local church, but our church as Seventh-day Adventists, what is it that someone would come in and say, they haven't gotten this quite right yet? I think the first thing they might meet is our attitude. Mm-hmm. Our attitude toward people we don't know. Mm-hmm. Our attitude toward people coming into the church. And maybe our attitude toward one another. I hear so many stories from people who get hurt or who feel that nobody cares in the church. So there's that aspect. You know, it was interesting. I don't know if you read the recorder. There was an article by Brad Newton, who's our board chair. He said that recently, apparently the North American Division asked the pastors, gave a survey to the pastors asking them, to tell what they felt the church, their church needed, their their individual church needed most. Did you read that? Anybody read that? Yeah, started reading that. And then Brad went on to list all the things that pastors struggle with in their churches, and he said that the number one thing that the pastors responded was renewal, mm-hmm. spiritual renewal. Yeah, well. And that's what happened in, in the elders group, Dave knows this. We had a, a season of fasting and prayer, asking God what He wanted us to do. And what we all came back to the table with this had to do with the financial, huge financial struggle we have as a church to re, to redo some things that are falling apart. <clears throat> and when we came back together, we said, you know, the Lord told us that it wasn't money that we needed; it was conversion. And, uh, I think it's significant that Jesus, when he said that the way he'd be able to pick out the people who are his, wasn't by the fact that they have all their doctrinal ducks in a row. That it was that we would be that you'd be able to tell because they would have the love that he has. By this, you will know that you are my disciples. There's another article in that same recorder by. Jesse, I hope I get the name right, Seidel. Doesn't say who he is or where he's from. So I don't know if this is a pseudonym <laughs> for someone who we do know, but um, he, made, he pointed out, you know, we began as a church making a mistake <laughs> in biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt, since God led us to do that, I've always felt that God was deliberately letting us fall flat in order to start us out on the right foot of humility where we don't think we have it all right. Mm -hmm. And he goes on in this article to say, yeah, we can have it all right and we can be really wrong. It's it's quite an interesting way of dealing with the book of Jonah. Paul says, I wish that I myself... We're accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people. 
It's a very strong Jewish language. Yeah. It's, it's very reminiscent of Moses. Yes. Or of Daniel. Blot me out. Daniel. Yeah. Identifying himself with the sins of his people right. when he comes to God to right. pray. Right. All right, let's go on to verse verses 6. Uh, boy. I wish we could do a prayer walk around the campus before the school year begins. You want to do, why don't, we could stop now and do that. Mm-hmm. Because the next passage. Oh, no, it's okay. Oh, you want you, to talk about it? Were you, were you thinking of doing that now? No, that no, would was take at time. some time. Yeah. You um, can keep going. Okay, so this is a very long passage and we have six minutes, five minutes. One minute for each verse. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll be reviewing this again next week. But, um, Katrina, would you read verses 6 through 15? I'm giving you a really long one. I didn't bring my goggles, but I'll do my best. But is it not that the word of God has taken no effect? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For when he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. We should be able to cover that in three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like he chooses people, and then it kind of goes back to that whole predestination little passage that makes it hard to really grasp at all. It's hard for us to understand. It seems like we have only two options. Either this isn't the way we see it, or we see it as as God predestining Mm -hmm. everybody who's going to be saved and everybody who's Mm -hmm. going to be lost. But I I heard an example uh, years ago that I thought has been helpful to me. The person said it had to do with something like that has to do with seeing things in two dimensions versus three dimensions, and say, let's say if you're only looking at this thing in in two dimensions instead of seeing it as a three dimensional object, when you see it from the side, is it a rectangle? Well, yeah. If you look at it this way, it's a it's circle. A circle. Well, so which is it? Is it a rectangle mm. or a circle? The answer is yes, Uh, you know, and it's both because it it, it transcends two dimensions. Right. Um, And that a lot of the, and so then the 
the idea was that a lot of these things where we see seems to be two conflicting things, how could it both be? It's because there is an element of this that transcends what we can understand, mm. um, that connects these things together. And so it's both, but in ways that we just don't understand. Um, but um, I also think, you know, maybe part of it is as far as the predestination um, of that it's like if if Bill Gates decided that he was going to give away all of his money and wrote a thousand dollar check to every person in the country or whatever and we get it in the mail some people are going to run right down and cash it other people are going to take a look at this and say well this is junk mail uh, this is clearly mm -hmm. couldn't be real they're going to throw it out the, fa the fact is he gave them a thousand dollars they chose not to actually deposit it into their account. This is um, this is what what I have long thought is that he predestines everybody to be saved, but w some of us don't choose to be saved. Right, I don't believe that. Because why would he select only those? Only these people right. can be saved. And that's why it's hard to deal with the, the chosen people, you know, for me, at least, you know, like he did literally choose Israel, he literally, and I, you know, I've always heard, well, that was an example and all this kind of stuff, you know, but it seems like um, there's more than that, but it's hard to, you know, hard to there are some breakthroughs in the Old Testament uh, that where God casts ownership on some other nations besides Israel. Wait, say that again? God actually casts and I see his cast because he throws his shoe, <laughs> he throws his sandal <laughs> on Moab and Philistia and, and other places. There's, there's some peaks where God is trying to work with other nations, but it was to Israel that he was able to do the most. I think part of it is a misunderstanding, perhaps on their part and ours, as far as what it meant to be chosen. Yeah. Um, that it didn't mean just because he ch chose to be working in a particular way with Israel did not mean that he wasn't working with other people in, in other ways yeah. uh, and that he was not choosing them but that they had a specific role that he wanted them to right. do um, but if you go through you, you look in each of the courts of the, whether it be in in, in Persia or Babylon or in Pharaoh, mm -hmm. that God had his people, uh, whether it be Joseph or Daniel or and other people that we never heard of, mm -hmm. um, that that were there working. Well, um, even he, he talks about choosing Cyrus, for example. Right. So we're going to come to Pharaoh, actually, on a different negative note. But I want to I want to point out in verse 15, this is directly quoting... Uh, Exodus 33. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he does not go on to say, and I will have wrath on those who I have wrath, or condemnation on those I have condemnation. He doesn't say that at all. He just talks about his mercy and his compassion. And, and this, is in the, in, this is an interesting twist to the story, because the story is the golden calf incident. And Moses... Uh, is talking with God, and God says, step aside, Moses. Those people have, that you've brought out of Egypt have I'm gone and worshipped other gods, and l let me alone that I might destroy them, that I might get angry and destroy them. It's like God can't get angry with Moses standing there. 
And, and, and I think that that actually enlightens us as to the nature of God's wrath right there. But Moses takes him to be angry. God didn't tell him to break the Ten Commandments. Moses descends from the mountain, sees what's happening, throws the Ten Commandments on the, on the ground, and they shatter. So God tells him, you, you create the next pair of tablets. These were tablets, ancient Near Eastern stone tablets. You have to chisel out the next tablet, pair of tablets, and then bring them back to me, and I'll write on them. Is it like, now you write that out on the board a hundred times. And so it's like God here is saying, Moses, I have compassion on whom I have compassion. Because God sends a plague, but Moses has them drink this water, and he has them slay 3,000 people. And, and Ellen White, and I, I want to say this because I, I don't want to do injustice to what she says, but she says that God, under inspiration, he carried that out. Well, inspiration can mean that in the momentum of the moment, in the sense of God's glory, he did what he thought was the right thing to do. As far as breaking the tablets? Not as far as breaking the tablets. I think that was impulsive, as far as having the 3,000 slain. Oh, oh. Instead of letting God do it. God deal with it. So, I just, I see this as God pleading for mercy for his people, actually. Um, And the reason he says, step aside Moses and all of that, is because he was testing Moses. Ellen White points this out. He was testing Moses. Are you going to put up with these people? (laughs) Look what they've done. Moses simply sees anger. So that's, that's one thing we can say about this. The other thing is, and I should have had you read this verse, 16. Mm-hmm. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. The way it says it in Maya says, So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. Same thing. Mm-hmm. But more understandable, <laughs> more contemporary English. So that's, I think that's his, his climax to this section. But he talks about something very interesting. Not everybody who is born into Abraham's family is really called Abraham's family. They're not really Abraham's family. Not everyone who is baptized in the Adventist church. Well, that's why I think it was hard for them to understand this whole thing of being chosen, because they felt that, hey, well, if you're born into the family, then you're, you are. But that wasn't the case. They really did, and they made such a deal of it by Jesus' day, that you had to be able to trace your ancestor back to a certain ancestor before the exile, who they knew they could trace back to Abraham. Um, in order to be one of the chosen. Otherwise, you were just one of the people of the land, and you weren't really worth much. Well, our time has passed up. God's trying real hard to show us the other dimensions through all this. Uh But it's so hard. I'm just like, uh. (laughs) And it's not new. I mean, look at that. It was the same thing. All right. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word, for its testimony about who you are and our relationship to you. 
that if grace could be earned, it would no longer be grace. And that you are mercy and you are compassion. And we can't earn that. Pray that we may appreciate and absorb all the messages of Paul that we have covered today and live with them in our minds this week. In Jesus' name, amen.